Welcome to the Shock Your Potential podcast with your host, Michael Sherlock. We all have potential, but sometimes we need inspiration to get us to our peak performance. Whether you are starting out in your career, ready to move up the corporate ladder, or taking the leap into entrepreneurship, Michael's guests provide powerful tools and resources to shock your potential. Shock Your Potential is a global professional development training company committed to your unique journey. Learn more about us today at shockyourpotential.com and download our free Shock Your Potential app today. Listen in to today's expert. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Shock Your Potential. I am your host, Michael Sherlock, and all month long in October, we're talking about something that's very important to all of us, and that's caring for our communities. In the last year and a half, we've learned a lot more about caring for each other and taking care of each other on a, a local scale, but also a global scale. And my guest today is going to talk to us about something that's very important for us to all not only know about, but to feel inspired to do something about how we deal with our climate. So my guest is Neil Kitching. He's a geographer and an energy specialist from Scotland. He's written his first book called Carbon Choices, and that's on the common sense solutions to our climate and nature crisis. He works for the public sector agency, promoting the opportunities for businesses to benefit from low carbon heating and water technologies. And, you know, he says he had a midlife career change from an accountant to working in sustainable development and then to energy. And his book arose from his, you know, just like many of us, frustration that so many people lack a basic understanding of climate change and its serious impact. Education is the first step towards taking action, and community is one way to galvanize that action. So joining me today all the way from Scotland is Neil Kitching. Thank you for joining me today. Hello, and thanks very much for inviting me. I love it. I'm so glad to have you. And I know that we uh, got to know you or connected with you with our other friend, Kevin Albin, and uh, he's as passionate as you are about what we can do to the environment and to help with these issues we're facing. But I just hit a few highlights of your bio. Tell us a little bit more about you and your passion, your mission to help us all and how that will help us to shock our potential in this world. Yeah, so I was brought up in Perth in the centre of Scotland on the edge of the Highlands. Always enjoyed the great outdoors and uh, going skiing and enjoying snow. And uh, I guess that led me into wanting to study geography at university. So mm -hmm. I completed a geography degree at Edinburgh University and then came out during the midst of one of the great recessions when there was no jobs available. Oh. Um, so desperately looking for work I applied to be an accountant I was always quite good at maths and numbers and uh, trained to be an accountant in London and then worked away busily as an accountant for 20 years uh, but always had at the back of my mind that uh, yes I wasn't very satisfied with this career choice but it's very mm -hmm. hard to change um, but uh, eventually 20 years later I had a midlife crisis <laughs> and did successfully change my career I had to take a pay cut of course but uh, no regrets there. So yeah, I moved into sustainable development policy and I work as a energy specialist helping businesses. So very happy where I've landed. Mm, yes. So, you know, you also then wrote a book, so you're an author. What prompted you to write the book? And tell us a little bit about it as well. Yeah, so I learned about climate change 30 years ago when I was studying geography and uh, it was all very factual. I could see how sensitive the ice sheets were to a changing climate and uh, if the ice sheets melt, how that's going to be 
desperately serious for civilization and um and then worked away in business for 20 30 years and nobody seemed to care nobody was acting mm. on it and i could never understand why that was the case mm. and then even when i moved into the environmental area i seemed to be speaking to the same people all the time so some people knew all about it but the majority of the public didn't mm -hmm. so i just thought yes let's write a book let's get everything in my head out onto paper and see if I can influence and change some people and uh, some government policies. And then on top of that, there was the announcement of the climate change conference, uh, COP26, yes. to be held near to where I live in Glasgow in November. And so that really spurred me into writing this book quickly. I wanted to get the book out prior to that conference. So tell, what are some of the lessons that you teach us in your book and how is it being received? Because I think you know, your point is absolutely valid. We all know that there have been things going on for the last 30 years and there's been some things that have been done, but I think there's still a sense of maybe, I don't know that I want to say skepticism because I think that more people actually believe in it. And I don't want to say just a sense of fatalism that they say there's nothing I can do, but I think there's still a sense of it's not going to bother me in my lifetime. So I guess maybe some selfishness in there. So if it's not going to bother me in my lifetime, why do I do anything about it? So how do you help people get motivated to actually see that they can have an impact and actually make some changes in their day-to-day -day or business day-to-day -day life? That's a lot of questions. So I'll see what I can answer. Pick me up if I've missed out on some. So yeah, going back four or five years, there was a lot of skepticism and people certainly thought this won't affect me. This will affect my grandchildren. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, some people are motivated by that. Some people aren't. But mm -hmm. uh, really, the last two, three years, we've seen the effects of climate change hitting uh, all of the world. So the, the obvious things are the huge fires in Australia, mm -hmm. the big fires in the Western United States, yes. uh, unprecedented, unprecedented heat in Siberia, and then yes. Canada recently. Uh, in Canada was scary because I think it was four or five degrees centigrade above previous maximums. So that goes away beyond even what the climate scientists were warning of. So right. climate change is beginning to hit us. And, um, you know, for people in northern latitudes, you can maybe cope with it. But people who are already in arid or semi-arid areas, it could tip into a place where you can't really live in these areas. And of course, that will then lead to mass migration and you can just imagine the political turmoil that's going to cause so yes unfortunately absolutely. climate change will affect us all either directly or indirectly i think there's no escaping that yeah and we're already seeing it you know within the u.s like you were you were referencing in the west i mean i think people are really paying attention to it now because so many years of severe drought in the west and exceptionally high temperatures for way earlier in the summer than you'd ever see and so with all that chaos, I actually live in Philadelphia. So 3000 miles away from California, a week and a half ago, I walked out my door and I used to live in Washington state where there were a lot of wildfires from time to time, usually in the fall, not horrible, not as bad as they are now, not as bad as in, in California, for instance, but I always knew that sky, that sky with the orange glow of the, and you could smell the smoke in the air. I always knew when it was, you know, kind of fire season or once upon a time when they actually used to burn crops. And I looked out in the sky in Philadelphia and said, this is like being at home. And what had happened was because of the heat over the country and the air masses and this, all the um, smoke, the smoke actually went up and over the U S and landed back around Philadelphia and New York. 
it was crazy. You cannot deny that there's something happening when you're smelling the smoke from a fire that's 3000 plus miles away, Gosh. you know, the, the next day. I mean, it's, it's crazy. So I think people are recognizing it, but still the sense of what can I do about it? So yes, my book um, really lays out the role of the different players. And so that's governments, businesses, communities, and individuals, and it overlaps between all four. Uh, but to me, it has to be led by governments. They're the ones who make the big policy decisions and they're the ones with the money and they decide mm -hmm. our taxes and our subsidies. Mm -hmm. um, but it's up to individuals and uh, communities to influence those politicians. Um, certainly in democracies, we uh, vote for them. And so we have a direct influence there. And you still hear a lot of politicians saying that they're not under pressure from their voters to act in climate change. Mm -hmm. So that just suggests there's more that we can all do. And um, we need government to set regulations on businesses to encourage and to encourage and force businesses to act in more sustainable ways. But then again, we need individuals, perhaps through communities, to also put pressure on those businesses and perhaps to work with the businesses because that can be a very mm -hmm. fruitful way forward too. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting, you know, you were talking about the fact that we'll face, you know, massive migration. And I've been thinking about that a lot because I would no more want to go buy a house in California today than cut off my arm because there's just, you know, depending on where you are, you might not have your home, depending on where you live, you might not have water. And, you know, you see the impact to a state that is larger, you know, has a bigger um, budget than many countries. And it's interesting to think about what will happen with that as people get tired of it, fed up, lose their homes and move out elsewhere. And we're already seeing it. They're moving more north, they're moving more west, uh, east, um, but not to the levels yet that I think we'll see. But what happens to an economy when, when you know, a significant portion of your population moves, you know, then, then you've got other issues. The, the issue is that the insurance companies won't put up with it. So they might pay out once for damage against flood or fire, yep. but uh, they probably won't pay out again. So once these businesses become uninsurable, then um, they probably can't operate in those locations anymore. And that's the way, certainly in developed countries, and the way things can, can pan out. Yes, I agree. Well, Neil, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to hear from our sponsor, and we will be right back to learn more what we can do. Top Dog Learning Group, LLC, is a leadership change management and diversity inclusion consulting firm based in Orlando, Florida, but with top doggers, aka consultants, throughout North America and beyond. They focus on training programs, both virtual and face-to-face, -face, keynotes and lunch and learns, group and one-on-one -on -one coaching, and off-the-shelf solutions. One such solution is their masterclass on the top three strategies to be resilient in times of change. This thoughtful self-paced online training will guide you through three tactics you can use immediately, not just to survive, but to thrive when change comes at you. Use the code RESIL50OFF for 50% off the program. Just go to bit.ly forward slash 3A5M ls6 and enter the code resil 50 off in all capitals to redeem your 50 percent off coupon the link and code will be available in our show notes as well for easy access 
Learn more today at topdoglearning.learningworlds.com. And we are back with Neil Kitching, and we're talking about all things climate change and what things we can impact. And I know you were talking before the break about, you know, the potential of, you know, really influencing our political leaders. Um, I hate to say this because it sounds terrible. You know, we live in this great economy in the U.S., but very few people are involved with their politicians other than whether they vote for them or against them or get mad or happy depends on who wins. And, and so I see that part of our challenge of facing these things is that we don't have enough people that are taking an active involvement at that level. Um, besides that, are there other things that we can do to help, you know, mitigate, to influence, to, you know, to change maybe some of the, the higher levels of destruction that we may see? Um, well, in terms of what we can do as individuals, uh, if that's what you're asking, then mm -hmm. uh, there's obviously lots that we can can do. Um, so just, I think the starting point for me is where you choose to live. Mm -hmm. And um, this can be quite an awkward conversation with people. But uh, if you live in a relatively small, compact flat in an inner city, and if you're perhaps sharing that accommodation with other people, then your carbon impact is far smaller than if you own a large detached property out in the suburbs. Yes, true. Um, now, of course, a lot of people want their large detached properties. I'm not saying you shouldn't, but yeah, I think you just need to think about it. So if you live in the city centre, there's a lot of people around about you. You can walk to services, you can walk to shops, you can walk mm -hmm. to the post office, you can walk uh, to your children can walk to school, which I think is extremely important. Yes. Um, so you don't need to travel as much. And if you do need to travel, there's public transport. Mm -hmm. Now, the opposite extreme is people who live out in the countryside or in sprawling suburbs. And uh, there you're completely dependent on your car. You probably need to take your children to school by car. Mm -hmm. And that's not healthy for them. It's not good for the environment. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's the starting point to me. Let's think about more about communities. Um, we we have a concept here called 20-minute communities where all services or nearly all services are accessible within uh, walking or cycling 20 minutes from your house. Oh, that's and, wonderful. Um, you know, that would make such a difference. But where I live, I still see nothing but new isolated houses being built in the countryside. And they tend to be very large houses. They mm -hmm. are often constructed the owners would claim they're eco houses. They're constructed of timber, probably highly insulated, but uh, there's probably one or two people living in these houses and they probably own one or two cars as well. Mm -hmm. So it's probably not really that eco-friendly in the big picture. So that's the starting point. There's lots more. It's funny because my husband and I, we live just what you said. We live in center city in Philadelphia. We live in a row house. So it's not as uh, energy consuming to heat or cool our houses because we have shared walls. We yeah. have not had a car in, I think October will make 11 years without a car, at least 10. I can't, I've lost track. We walk everywhere. We use public transportation, but not as often as, as walking. And it's amazing because if you would have asked me 12 years ago before I moved to Philadelphia, I lived in one of those suburbs with the big yard and the detached garage and the big SUV and you know two vehicles in the household. And when I moved here, 
it was such a difference, but mm-hmm. I don't even want to go back. I, at some point in time, we might not be able to live in the city, which means we'll have to buy a car and all those elements. But I don't want to, because not only do I think it's great that you know we don't have as big of a carbon footprint, but I just don't want that complicated of a life. <laughs> it's a lot simpler this way. <laughs> Good. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I think there's other ways too. Um, like you said, there's a number of other ways. You know, um, you know the the decisions we make about you know plastic bags at the grocery store, or even paper bags versus bring reusable bags. That those things do add up. I do see more people making choices like that and using you know water bottle that they can reuse over and over again versus single use plastic water bottles. So I think that there are a lot of things that are that are positive with people that I see, do you feel like we're making any headway as, as a society to making those individual choices that help us make smaller carbon footprint? I see two sides to this. I mean, in the West, we just consume so much stuff and that's been ever increasing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of things become cheaper and cheaper. Uh, Capitalism has been extraordinarily successful at bringing down prices but it just means we buy lots of stuff that we use once and then throw away. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just need to look at what's in your garbage and uh, if you had a proper look at it and then think of all the resources that have gone into that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably getting worse, certainly globally, because other countries are now copying our, our bad habits. Mm. Um, so, yes, there's lots of good practice. In Scotland, we introduced a plastic bag tax of five pence per bag mm-hmm. um, the general public weren't really very keen on it the newspapers ran articles against it <laughs> and yet as soon as, it was, as soon as it was in place everybody accepted it right. and the uh, usage of plastic bags fell by over 90 percent yeah and now you see less plastic bags in rivers and the countryside there's less litter so there's advantages all around uh, from that very simple measure as I say five pence it's really next to nothing yeah, uh, but it influences behavior. And so I think we need more things like that, more things to nudge people's behavior towards better outcomes. Yes, um, absolutely. But the question is whether I'm hopeful or unhopeful. Yeah, I think for every good thing you see, there's another bad thing. So they almost balance each other out. We just need to mm-hmm. do more of the good things. Yeah, yeah consumption is a big thing. And uh, I think the worrying thing is that if you go to developing countries, you just see a, a sea of uh, plastic rubbish along the roads and uh you know they're copying our our bad habits yeah so uh, bottled water is a classic example um nearly all bottled water is sold in plastic bottles and then the bottles are just used once and thrown out yeah and uh that's it that's it filling up landfills if you're lucky if you're unlucky it's littering the countryside yeah. And once, you know, they fill up a landfill, then they just cover it up with dirt and grass and you forget it's that it was a landfill until there's issues with it later. <laughs> well, we have landfills that were on the coast and now with uh, rising sea levels and coastal oh. erosion, the, the waves are washing out these landfills. Oh, And, uh, you know, it's, it's thousands and thousands of pounds to try and resolve that. So we've just created problems for ourselves. Well, that's how we end up with all this stuff in the uh, oceans. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I know there's so many different ways that it happens. And it's just, I think it's important that we talk about it because every com- country does handle their issues differently. 
And if we're going to, you know, try and beat a common foe, we're going to have to start aligning some of our strategies in order to be successful. Absolutely, yes. And uh, I suppose the third big area in our lives that we could change is our choice of diets. So what, mm-hmm. what we choose to eat. I mean, for a start, we probably eat far too much, which uh, makes us fat and unhealthy. So that's mm-hmm. not a good start. But there's all the enormous food waste that uh, arises. And of course, all that food has emitted a lot of uh, carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide in its processing. And then to waste that food is really uh, kind of criminal behavior almost. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm sure you're aware that... Uh, the, the big issue around our diets is uh, eating beef and mutton and dairy products, mm-hmm. basically because cows and sheep are ruminants and they burp out methane. And mm-hmm. uh, it's quite a strong, powerful ga- uh, greenhouse gas. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, the big area that governments don't like to talk about. They think they're going to upset businesses and the, the farmers. And yeah. So it's a bit of a no-go area for, for governments, but... Uh, Certainly, as individuals, it's an area we can change overnight if we choose to do so. One of the things that I, and I don't know how long, so I won't be able to give good statistics on this, but I was watching something because I'm kind of fascinated by plastic and how, you know, how much plastic, when you really think about how much plastic we use that is single use or very short term use, it blows my mind. But when I was thinking about food waste and I was watching this documentary on plastic and it talked about when you have food waste and you throw it away in a plastic bag and that plastic bag goes maybe even into a larger plastic bag that goes into a landfill, that the time for decomposition of that, you know, that cucumber end or that, you know, piece of the tomato or the onion you didn't like the rate of decomposition is, I don't know, is a crazy amount, you know, hundred times as long, thousand times as long. I don't know. I'm not good at the, the detail of it, but it was a really telling story about, you know, what else we can do that process. I've thought a lot about, you know, composting in the city is a challenging, uh, you know, challenging opportunity, but those are things that we can do that would also help even in a minimal way to make a difference, but it takes a lot of extra work. And I think as humans, we don't always want to do all that extra work. So you're right. Uh, All our food waste should be composted. We now have what we call caddies, little containers in our kitchen that we can put uh, any vegetable peelings into. And the kinds you can either compost that at home or the council will collect it and take it to an anaerobic digestion plant. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't, and if you put it in a plastic bag and it goes to landfill, and then eventually it rots down, it gives off methane. And as I said earlier, methane is a powerful greenhouse gas. So that food waste actually creates quite a lot of harm. Yeah. I have to say that on garbage day, at least maybe every other garbage day or something in my neighborhood, there's a person who comes around and, and people, there are probably six or seven people on my block who will put out their compost bins for him. And he's got a bicycle and he puts them on, you know, dumps them in. And, but I, I've looked into it every time and I'm like, it's a pretty hefty charge for him to come get it and take it away. And I understand there's, you know, business costs in here, but I think those are some of the ways that as communities, we also could start to think about how to really make some better choices that maybe if the easier we can make them for people, 
then the more likely they are to do that. And I, it just kind of always makes me curious, how can we take something that seems like such a great benefit to us and make it more easily accessible to every person? Right. Yeah. In our area, the council collects it free of charge, Mm -hmm. Uh, but maybe you don't have that. You could have a community composting scheme, I guess. That's one way forward. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. It's good looking into. Well, Neil, I think it's fascinating and I, it's definitely an important topic. So I'm glad you've shared it with us. And we're going to have all your contact information on our show notes, including links to your book. But just in case somebody wants to look you up right now, what's the best way for them to find you? Yes. So my book's available on Amazon and on Kindle. So obviously that's available in the United States. Also, if you want to contact me, if you want to read my blogs or read more about the book, then uh, have a look at www.carbonchoices.uk. Wonderful. And before we go, do you have any last words of wisdom or pearls of advice for my listeners and viewers? I think uh, people think of the environment as being a problem, but to me, um, going for a low carbon future is better. So you can have a better diet. You can live better. You can, uh, you know, walk to school and uh, live in warmer homes that don't require so much heating if you're well insulated and you can cycle along roads not be following a bus that's belching out uh, diesel fumes so all these things are good things that we should be striving for so I don't think uh, tackling climate change is anything to fear it's really something to embrace. I love it. Great words. It is definitely something to embrace. Neil, thank you so much for being my guest today. It has been a pleasure learning from you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Shock Your Potential podcast. Learn more about us today at shockyourpotential.com, including details on Michael's two best-selling books. Tell me more, how to ask the right questions and get the most out of your employees, and sales mixology. Why the most potent sales and customer experiences follow a recipe for success. Make sure to check out our Shock Your Potential app, on-demand professional training resources to help you excel in your career. And as always, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like us today.